All right, we are continuing our Sunday school hour on the doctrine of worship, and we're considering the biblical and reformed doctrine of worship. And I think perhaps this week we will turn more specifically towards the reformed doctrine of worship. We're getting into what makes us uh, kind of distinctively reformed when it comes to what we believe about the worship of God. So to give you a a big picture on where we've been these last few weeks, we've been considering specifically corporate worship and how it is unique from private worship. And we have seen from Scripture that we're commanded to gather with others in worship. And it's not only a command, but it's a practice that we see in the early church. Corporate worship is unique. It is a command of God. We've also seen how corporate worship is unique because of the presence of God. God is present in His temple, which is the gathered church, the body of Christ. And He's present in a special way, in a way that is unique and distinctive from His presence in all the world. And is unique and distinctive from His presence even in the lives, individual lives and hearts of His people. And we've also seen last week how Christ exercises His authority as head of the church through the gathering and preaching and elements of worship. And we considered that in, uh, from several New Testament texts, that even in the area of church discipline, Christ's power and authority is there. In the preaching of God's Word, it is Christ Himself who is speaking. It is uh, Christ who is, as it were, Himself preaching to His people in the uh, elements of worship itself. And in the Lord's Supper as well, we saw how Christ is present in a unique way. And we have a fellowship and communion, not only with one another, but with the Lord Jesus Christ through the observance of the Lord's Supper. So this is part of the bigger picture of why corporate worship is unique. We're commanded, God is present, and Christ exercises His authority in a special way through the elements. But this raises some questions, and this is kind of where we're turning the corner here. I think this is week 14. I think maybe we have about three or four weeks left. So there is light at the end of the tunnel, guys. But this raises some questions, and we're turning the corner to to what is most distinctive about our convictions regarding worship. If corporate worship is unique, what then should our worship look like? What is appropriate in worship? And, of course, on the other hand, what is inappropriate in worship? Is there anything that is inappropriate in worship? Are there wrong ways to worship God? We considered this when we first began, but is sincerity all that matters? We know how important sincerity of worship is. Right? The Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Not in outward formalism, but with worship from the heart that is pleasing to God. But is this all that matters? Is the heart the only thing that matters? Is there something else that matters? Is the form 
important. The ways in which we worship God. And of course, this gets back, circles back, what should our worship look like? What governs and directs our worship? And obviously, I'm speaking most specifically about corporate worship. So the next few weeks, we're going to look at what's called the regulative principle of worship, the RPW. The regulative principle of worship. Today, we're going to just start with a very very broad definition and general discussion. What is it? And, you know, this is something that is often um, misunderstood and misapplied. So we want to be careful with our definition. We want to be careful to explain what it is and what it isn't. And then from there, we're going to turn more specifically to make some applications from it. Like, for example, who ought to lead worship and preach? Is there a specific day of worship? Are there appropriate or inappropriate forms of worship? Are there inappropriate inappropriate attitudes of worship? And I'll explain later what I mean by that. But it gets in also to areas of music. And I know this is one of our main concerns. Do the scriptures speak on music styles? Specific instruments or types of songs? It's a legitimate question. We've got to wrestle with it. We don't want to make scripture say something that it doesn't say. But also, if it does direct us in this area, we need to pay attention to it. What about order of worship or liturgy? Does, do the scriptures speak of this as well? What kind of freedom do we have here in our liturgy and in our music and in our attitudes and all of these sorts of things? What should guide our liturgical structure? So that's kind of where we're going to go, make application of principles that we derive from Scripture and seek honestly to deal with the Word of God, not binding anyone's conscience, not making Scripture say something that it doesn't say, like, for example, you know, drums are of the devil. <laughs> Scripture doesn't speak on specific instruments. But can we then say, well, anything goes? Well, that's something that we're going to explore. So let's begin with some broad considerations regarding the regulative principle of worship. And one of, you know, general considerations here. I just want to, you know... To begin by asking some very basic questions that we've already answered. Who is the object of our worship? The object of our worship is, of course, as we've seen, the God who has revealed himself in Scripture, in the person of Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit. The object of our worship is the triune God of Scripture. Is the only object, legitimate, lawful, obedient object of our worship. So, following this, it would make sense then, if we ask the follow-up question, who determines whether worship is pleasing to Him? This question is an implication of this question. 
The right answer to this question is an implication of how we answer that question. If God is the object of our worship, then God is the one who determines what is pleasing to Him. If we're worshiping ourselves, or we're worshiping something else, then obviously we can determine what is appropriate, appropriate or right worship. But if God is the object of our worship, then He's got to be the one who determines what is pleasing to Him. And the flip side of this, not only who determines whether worship is pleasing, but who determines what kind of worship is best or most edifying for the people of God. We've noted kind of all throughout in passing that our gathering of worship is not just about us doing things for God, but it's about God doing things for us as well. He's bringing us to the table, to reveal His law to us, to reveal His gospel to us, to judge and to justify, to commune, to bless, to give the benediction to us, to to send us out with His blessing and His mercy, revealing Himself, working in us, building and strengthening our faith. And so it would make sense then that He determines what we need most. In worship. And this is kind of part and parcel to the regular principle of worship. That God is the object, and then also God is all wise, and that we are not wiser than He is in determining what works best. So in this sense, let me jump back to how we began in the first six or seven weeks of this study. We began by considering the greater theology of worship. We began by considering how is it that we even approach this topic. How do we study the doctrine of worship? And we noted, I took several weeks to work through that, and and demonstrate how our doctrine of worship flows out of other things that we believe about God in the Scriptures. Our doctrine of worship is going to flow out of what we believe about Scripture. Is it sufficient? Right? Is it inerrant? Is it the Word of God? Where, what we, how we answer that will determine how, what our worship looks like. If, if Scripture is not sufficient, then we need to add to it. We need to come up with our own and add our own ingenuity to it. We consider as well that our doctrine of worship flows out of what we believe about who God is. His nature, His characteristics, His attributes. If He is a holy and righteous God who does not clear the guilty, then we are to approach Him with reverence and awe in the person of Christ. What we believe about His nature and His attributes will determine what our worship looks like. We considered back then, we considered how the God of Islam, the God of Islam is that, is that you know, enacting um, wrathful God without mercy, and their worship reflects that. They fall down, and they 
perform these rituals and they become like who they worship. We also consider how doctrine of worship will flow out of who we believe, what we believe about who we are. If we are sinners, if we if nothing good dwells in us by nature, if we truly believe that, then we will understand that okay, we need the revelation of the scriptures to guide us into true worship. But if we believe that, you know, we're we're actually pretty good people. And we might make some mistakes. We, we're kind of inclined towards evil, but we, we, we're, we're good-hearted naturally. Then it's going to affect our worship. Then we can, obviously, we would then believe that we can just worship God in a way that is fitting to us. That we might have some great original ideas about worship. So it flows out of our doctrine of sin. Our worship flows out of what we believe about the gospel as well. Specifically, how God applies it to His people. How, where is the power of God in this world found? The gospel is the power of God under salvation. The gospel is what justifies, but also what sanctifies His people. So our worship will flow out of our understanding of the gospel and how the Lord reveals and works the gospel into us. And of course, our doctrine of worship also flows out of what we believe about the church, corporate worship in general, which we've been talking about the last few weeks. What we believe about what's going on in corporate worship, who makes up the people of God, things of that nature. So the regular principle is flows out of that right there. And it's built upon the fact that This is God's house. This is His spiritual temple. And that this is His worship. And it's built upon the fact that God specifically regulated worship regarding the earthly temple in the Old Testament. Remember, He gave Moses very strict instructions. And He said, you are to do exactly as I command you. You are not to add to it, he says, or remove anything from it. He regulated with great specificity. (laughs) I can't say that. (laughs) Very specifically, there we go, regulated the worship of the Old Testament. And part of the regular principle argues that his word also regulates worship in the greater temple, in the New Testament. Not in the same way. Because the Old Testament was considered, uh, considered obviously the earthly temple had to do with things that were earthly, typological, and uh, under the law, uh, the covenant of Moses, which was essentially had a uh, um, prominent works element in it. They had to obey in order to receive blessing. Well, in the New Testament, things change. We're in a different covenant. All the blessings come not because of our obedience, but because of our union with Christ. And so the worship of the New Testament is a lot different. It is spiritual worship, not so much outward. But in the same way, I'm going to argue that he still regulates it. He still gives instructions and commands that we are to follow carefully. That's what the regular principle is built upon. So, some historical background here. 
to the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle was really formulated in the Reformation. Now, we would argue that it goes back before the Reformation. You can find it in the uh, patristics, in the fathers. Uh, Of course, we would argue that it's founded in the New Testament as well. But it really came under this heading and this kind of formulation during the time of the Reformation. And it came about because, as so often is the case in church history, a heresy arises and the the church forms a doctrine in response to the heresy. That's what happened with the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not like the doctrine of the Trinity just came about when people just decided to come together and think up these things. It was people who started saying, Jesus Christ was a created being. He's not eternal. That the church came together and said, we've got to respond to this. Let's look to the scriptures. Controversy, in a sense then, helps the church. um, What should I say? Formulate its own beliefs. Go back to the scriptures and refine what we believe the Word of God says. So the regular principle of worship was really formulated in response to the Roman Catholic abominations of worship. We had their worship through relics. We had their worship through icons and images and statues and pictures. We had their worship in the Mass where they believe that you know, the body, the bread is actually turned into the physical body of Christ. And they fall down and worship this piece of bread. And they say that Christ's sacrifice is being represented. The reformers saw these things, saw the idolatry, the abominations, and it caused them, pushed them to go back to the Word of God to find out what they believe and why they believe it. And here, I'm really going to argue, it's not me, it's history. The Reformation was chiefly about reforming worship above everything else. That's really was the engine that drove the Reformation. Them seeing all these things, the Reformers, and saying, wow, This is idolatry because we departed from the Word of God, Sola Scriptura, right? Because we departed from Sola Gratia, grace grace alone, right? Because we've departed from justification by faith. Worship was really the central driving thrust of the Reformation. To quote John Calvin, actually I'm not going to quote John Calvin, I'm going to reference John Calvin. And uh, from Arpka's paper on the regular principle, you can find it on the Arpka website. But there they note that John Calvin asserts that the Reformation began not to rid the church of numerous and grievous abuses, but to restore a biblical respective in two areas. The worship of the church and the doctrine of salvation. For Calvin, that was the order in which Reformation must take place. Worship must be reformed first, The doctrine of grace, second. Reformation in worship must precede reformation in the way of salvation, 
or the latter will be severely retarded. I added a note of emphasis here. Note that this is the very opposite of today's emphasis. Perhaps is a reason why Reformation moves so slowly in our world. Today we have the attitude of, it's all about Jesus, man. It doesn't matter how you worship. It's just all about Jesus. It's about you and Jesus. That's all that really matters. But the Reformers believe that worship was primary. It was central. And that Reformation at that time needed to happen in worship before it would ever really reach the other areas of abuses and grievances. So, all that being said, that's kind of this brief, not even brief, but just a statement on the historical background. We're not exploring that. We don't have time to explore that. But that's really why it became formulated as a point of emphasis in the Reformation. But this raises, of course, the question, what is the regular principle of worship? Are there any questions before I jump to this point? Anything on what I've said so far? So what is the regular principle of worship? I've been talking about it. What specifically is it? Well, plain and simply, it is that worship, and most specifically I'm talking about corporate worship, is to be governed by the specific directions of Scripture. That's the basic point of emphasis in the regular principle. Worship is to be governed by Scripture. Doesn't sound real controversial, does it? Seems like everybody agrees that about that, right? Well, compare this with the Christian life. The scriptures, we would say, govern our lives, don't they? But much of the Christian life is to be lived based upon principles of Christian wisdom. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us who to marry, what movies are okay to watch and what aren't, whether to take a well-paying job or to instead go into non-profit work. So much of the big decisions in life, the Bible speaks nothing about. So much of what causes us stress and anxiety in life are on issues of uncertainty where we're, we're not sure what decision to make. You know, we don't lie in bed at night thinking about whether we should kill our neighbor or not. At least not normally, right? <laughs> the law of God speaks very clearly on that. We know that we're... God's answer is always going to be no, don't murder your neighbor. That's always 100%. There's no doubt about it. But God doesn't tell us. He doesn't even give a lot of specifics about things like how do we raise our kids. Some general principles, yes. At what age do we give our kids a, a, an iPhone, right? I mean, 
Eight. No, that's not the right answer. Thanks, Riley. <laughs> some, some major, major decisions and things that will push us one way or the other in life. Like what job to take, what city to move to, what home to buy, aren't answer my scripture. And we're pushed back to principles of wisdom. This is the Christian life. The law of God is not and it cannot be exhaustive. It was never meant to be in Israel and it isn't in our life as well. There are many things that it doesn't speak of specifically that are wrong that violate the character and nature of God, the principles of Scripture. The law of God is not exhaustive. But what I'm saying is this is different than the regular principle of worship. That's the argument I'm making. This is where it gets controversial. Because everybody wants to say, of course. Of course Scripture governs our worship. Of course it does. But they end up, Basically treating it as the same as the Christian life. Here, let me illustrate. We're going to contrast the regular principle with what's called the normative principle. Here's a graph that does that. This is a Puritan view, which is the regular principle of worship. Inside that circle is what true worship is. Over here is false worship. And this is the normative principle, or the Anglican view, or the modern-day view, or the Roman Catholic view. So, in the regular principle, true worship is only what falls in this circle. Only what is commanded. False worship is anything that's not commanded in Scripture. But the normative principle is true worship is anything that's commanded plus anything that's not forbidden. You see the difference? And false worship is only what is condemned. All right? Throwing your babies into the fire is condemned in the Old Testament. That's false worship. Everybody agrees on that. But what about the use of holy water, of incense, for example? Of liturgical dance. You see, the, 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 the regular principle says those things are not commanded in Scripture. And so they're false worship. But the Anglican view, the Northern principle says, well, those things aren't condemned in Scripture. So they're okay. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where... The Reformed Doctrine of Worship is distinct. This is where things get really controversial. Any questions at this point? Other than just the Snickers from the front row? <laughs> Trent. What about, um, is this specifically only about corporate worship, or is this, about, is this regard private worship too in the Reformed? I would say corporate worship is regular principle, while the normative principle guides private worship in some sense. Not in the same, same sense as the Anglican view, but we have a greater level of freedom because corporate worship is not just about you and God. It's about you and one another. There's a horizontal element. And you are serving and loving your neighbor when you participate in corporate worship. 
And you've got to look out for his conscience as well. And so um, it's, there's, there's greater strictness as in we don't worship in ways that would violate the conscience of our uh, neighbor. But in private worship, it's a little bit... For exa- Okay, let me put it this way. In private worship, you can worship in your underwear. <laughs> but in public worship, that's inappropriate. Now, it doesn't really hit on this, but you get the point. That there are more things involved in corporate worship than just, it's all the same. There are things that are inappropriate because you've also got to keep conscience of the fact that you, are, you have your neighbor with you. Exactly, yes, in a very special way. God is present there, uh, so it brings in a whole lot more uh, to, the, to the table, but also God has promised to bless there, and do we really trust the ways in which He's promised to bless us in a special way? We can go out and go camping and worship God just in our own way by seeing the beauties of nature, uh, but does that come with the same promises of gathering with God's people, partaking of the Lord's Supper, hearing the preaching of the Word? No, it does not. One builds us up in a special, distinctive way. The other um, is more general. All right, so we've got ten minutes. I've got to move quick here. But this is regulative versus Anglican view. This is, again, where things get controversial. In the Anglican view... We can gather for worship and all participate in underwater basket weaving. There's nothing wrong with it. Now they might say, well, that's probably not wise. We see that there's not some great benefit to that. But we would say, no, not only is it not wise, it's false worship. It is idolatrous worship. And you might say, wow, that sounds pretty heavy-handed there, Pastor Nathan. Well, I hate to say this, but next week we're going to look at some scriptures on why. When Jesus condemns the traditions of the Pharisees, they washed their hands as part of worship. And he says, you're perverting the worship of God because you're holding to traditions that are not commanded in scripture. I'm not going to jump ahead there. All right. So the regular principle views worship as different than the instruction that Scripture gives us in all of life. This is God's holy temple. This is special. This is unique. This is corporate. It has different rules, in a sense. In the public worship of God, specific requirements are made. Specific instructions are given. And we're not free to ignore them or add to them. It would be wrong to say, you know what, the pre- preaching is just so outdated. The worship of this church, all it's going to be is the singing of songs. That's all we're going to do. The regular principle governs and says, no, that, that's not okay. You're not free to ignore what God has given us to instruct our worship but also we're not free to add to them as well. John Calvin again. God disapproves of all modes of worship, and we're going to get into that and distinguish what is a mode or an element as distinguished from a circumstance. And just to give you a brief definition, um, 
The Lord's Supper is an element of worship. It's a way, a ceremony, a ritual in which we are worshiping. Um, but the fact that we meet on 10.30 a.m. in an air-conditioned air building is a circumstance. Or the fact that I use a microphone to project my voice is a circumstance. It's not an element, a way in which we're worshiping. It's just a, a circumstance, and circumstances, obviously, are not governed by Scripture. We can gather any time on the Lord's Day. We can use a microphone or recognition and lights or not. It, the modes, the elements of worship is what we're talking about specifically. And God disapproves of all of them that are not expressly sanctioned by His Word. This is what the regular principle argues. Here it is stated in our Confession of Faith. It's also stated in the other Reformed Confessions, including the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, and so on. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and is so limited by His own revealed will in the Scriptures that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, whatever we think is cool, whatever we think is best, nor the suggestions of Satan, which would be things expressly condemned by the Word of God, nor any, uh, uh, under any visible representations, okay, there's the second commandment, in that um, uh, God isn't to be worshipped through icons and relics and images and statues, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. I'm going to break that down in the coming weeks, but there it is stated succinctly in our Confession of Faith. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself, and it's limited by His own revealed will. And this is why Reformed worship is distinctive in our day. This is the distinctive element about our worship. Take, for example, the Church of England. We just considered Anglicanism a minute ago. But they state explicitly that they have the power, they have the right, they have the authority to ordain or to abolish ceremonies as they please. It's part of their canons. See, in our day, people don't express it quite this same way. Uh, they're very clear about it. Hey, we're the church. We can do whatever we want. Rather, in our day, the default mode of modern evangelicalism, they won't state it explicitly, but what, what basically they say, sincerity is all that matters. Whatever is not forbidden is okay. We are free, according to use general principles of wisdom, to worship in any way that we please, and so that whatever is not forbidden by the Word of God is pleasing. And so this would include ceremonies, it would include drama, liturgical dance, special programs. I would include perhaps um, the altar call. This ceremony, this ritual of coming forward and giving your life to Jesus. Things of that nature. Whatever is not forbidden is okay. While, if you haven't noticed, here, well, as long as it doesn't violate Scripture, here, obviously, our worship centers, if you've been to our worship, it centers on the things that God has revealed.
So in this, just remember the basic principles. If you buy a gift for your wife or your girlfriend, you don't go out and think about what is the best thing that I want to receive. (laughs) Right? Oh, she's going to love tickets to the game. Because I love the game. No, you think about what is pleasing to her, what she loves, what she desires. And in the same sense, when we offer our worship to God, we must settle it in our minds, in our hearts, to give Him what pleases Him. And it's not like He hasn't told us. It's not like we just give ourselves to the Spirit and let Him guide us wherever. He tells us what pleases Him in His Word. We've got to pay attention to this. In this respect, only God can tell us what is best for us. What kind of worship blesses us, strengthens our faith, builds us up in our most holy faith, gives us fortification against temptation and sin. If worship is the chief way in which we grow as Christians, which goes back to the last few weeks, this is what I've been arguing, if it is the chief way in which we grow as Christians, then it must be governed by more than just general principles. The Belgic, I'm sorry, the Heidelberg Catechism, when talking about this, says, Are we wiser than God? Are we wiser than God? Oh, Lord, we know what we most need in this culture. People don't need preaching anymore. They need something else. Are we wiser than God? Or do we believe and trust what He has said? That's the question. And as Trent already asked, and I brought out... See, I was getting there, but I didn't say that. See? You've got to give me credit. Worship is corporate, not just individual, so we cannot, must not bind the consciences of others with nothing less than the Word of God. All right, so that's broad, 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 broad. Next week, I'm going to say, how can we say this? Where is this in the New Testament? I'm going to defend this, attempt to, from Scripture. The regulative principle defended from Scripture. Look at some specific passages. And from there, we're going to move to draw some specific applications of the regular principle in our modern context. We're going to talk about liturgy. We're going to talk about leadership. We're going to talk about music. We're going to talk about the day of worship. We're going to talk about all of the implications of these things. Whether Scripture speaks with any, I guess, specific instruction regarding these things. Some of them it speaks very clearly, some of them it doesn't. And we've, we've, we've got to do some work. So that's where we'll be going from here. Are there any last questions or thoughts? Disagreements? Nathan's going to get back. Nathan's going to, okay, yeah, next week, right? 
That's going to be good. <laughs> I'll have to do uh, like 10 minutes of review if that's okay, Trent. <laughs> As always. All right, let's close in prayer.